Vanessa. Hi, Adam. Are you okay? I did not sleep. I watched um, Interstellar last night instead of sleeping. Okay. It's better than watch, like scrolling Twitter. <laughs> That's a better use of your insomnia. Well, it, it, it's not it's not a great movie, but it's 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 fun when you're just when you when you feel like some science magic. Mm-hmm. One of the themes of the movie is humanity trying to transcend its limitations and becoming five dimensional <laughs> beings. And I was just thinking, for the love of God, we can't even agree to all wear masks during a pandemic. <laughs> There's just no freaking way we're becoming five-dimensional beings. Anyway, you need to figure out this segue because I'm too tired. <laughs> okay. Okay, we're not going to transcend those limitations. Not this week. Um, although our guest that we're introing today, um, she's kind of trying. She's trying to like break the bounds of what is what is partisan media coverage these days. Or at least make fun of it. Yes, exactly. So we have notorious journalist Katie Herzog, mm-hmm. who I loved reading as a blogger and reporter for The Stranger, Seattle's The Stranger. She now no longer works for them, but has her own, obviously, podcast with journalist Jesse Single. It's called Blocked and Reported, and it's the perfect weekly digest of Twitter and online horribleness. But but Adam, so I didn't know Katie before you introduced me to her, but the way you introduced me to her was like, she's very controversial. So <laughs> it's almost inexplicably so. You pointed out that she is kind of a great guest to have now as a mirror image to Michael Smirconish, who we talked to, uh, I think, last week. He started entrenched within Republican politics and then got buffeted to the center. And Katie had a similar experience from the other side, mostly being pushed by f- people she considered her natural allies and friends. What happened to her is that she covered a story that for her readers seemed to tag her as a bigot. The crazy thing is, and you should read the articles for yourself to make your own judgment, but to my reading, she is um, the exact opposite of a bigot. She was writing a story about uh, transgender people who have transitioned and then decided to detransition. And the fascination in the story is that it tries to give light to a marginalized group within a marginalized group. And again, to my reading, she did so compassionately. And still, that created a lot of political backlash from people, again, that she thought were her natural allies, the left, the LGBTQ community. And even she says herself in the interview, she understands where the concerns were coming from. It's the thought that by simply drawing attention to this story, you're giving fodder to people who really are trying to delegitimize transgender people. But in her writing, if you actually bother to read it, you see that she takes great care to do right by the trans community and to disassociate herself from any group that would try to invalidate them. But despite her careful journalism, and no matter how much she avers in her writing, her commitment to what we consider liberal principles, she ended up being tagged by this meme as a transphobic retrograde monster. And that, while it made her no less committed to the liberal ideals of an open, free, inclusive society, it did make her, for the sheer volume of hate she received from her own side, more politically independent, which means less blindly committed to her own political tribe. Very similar, again, to the journey that Michael Smirconish underwent. I think what's cool, too, about Katie's story is that what she did after after this moment of kind of reckoning um, and, and the way that she's kind of shaped her career and her storytelling now in a way that kind of embraces more um, kind of both sides of issues and kind of, and she is no longer afraid to talk to people on the other side and to have her viewpoints potentially like shifted or changed according to those kinds of more open conversations. I think that's what's really what was really interesting to, to me when I as I was like researching more into her. Yeah, we got to talk about that. We got to talk about 
how Twitter is turning our lives into a, a cold, sweaty nightmare. Yeah. And how everyone is is performing horribly right now and about sexual repression because that's the only thing that really unites the left and the right. Oh, and I should say that um, this conversation was more explicit than our previous more godly series. So if this bothers you, we sincerely apologize. These are no longer the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and one last thing. This, uh, speaking of 2020, this was recorded before the most recent Trump development and his hospitalization in Walter Reed. <sighs> okay, enough disclaimers. <laughs> it never stops. But anyway, next up on Uncertain Things. Katie Herzog. Are you okay enough? <laughs> Katie, thank you for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Um, I, I just want to put a disclaimer out there uh, publicly that I am I'm, I'm coming out of the Yom Kippur fast and I have only now just eaten something for the first for the first time in the past 24 hours. And if I am dysfunctional or if you hear me munching, I apologize in advance. And also, I have no idea why I'm still doing the Yom Kippur fast, but that's a whole other psychological <laughs> treatise. So, Katie, what what's on your mind? <laughs> Wow, oh my God. Uh, what isn't on my mind at this point? Um, I, I'm thinking right now specifically um, about Donald Trump's taxes. That has sort of taken up my mind for the ah. last 24 hours. Oh, wow. You can, you, you, your mind has room for non-culture war things. I, this is a culture war thing. <laughs> this, it, all, it, all comes, it always comes down to the culture war. Oh, oh so, so, so uh, put those dots together for us. Right, do tell. Well, I, here's the thing. Okay, so the New York Times says this... It, this brilliant bit of investigative journalism. It should not take four years to get someone's, a, a president's or a presidential candidate's tax reforms, but New York Times, they do right. it, they do it, they get the tax returns. And I think there's an assumption by many on the left, a hopeful assumption that Donald Trump's tax returns are going to change anything. And I don't think that's mm. true. Because I think that mm -hmm. if you can hear a presidential candidate say something like, you know, women, you just grab them by the pussy and then you still vote for them. I highly doubt that the fact that the guy has used legal tax holes, tax loops um, to pay as little as possible for in his income tax is going to change anybody's opinion. On the other hand, if the first thing is abhorrent to you and the second thing doesn't feel like much of a blip, maybe yeah. maybe there there is some sort of kind of inverse relationship. Maybe it is. Maybe it would be consequential to somebody who yeah. didn't care about the former. Sure. Yeah. Maybe somebody will uh, will see this and say, like, that's the businessman for me. I also don't want to pay right. taxes. I'll, I'm going to vote for Trump. I was actually thinking some of the comments that I've been seeing on Twitter, which is which is certainly your domain, Katie, not 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 mine. I, I stay away for the most part. <laughs> yes. But 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 your your podcast is actually wonderful because it gives me a digest and, and allows me to completely check out from the from the product. So so thank you for that. <laughs> well, Kent, you're welcome. Um, but the one thing that I did notice a couple of days ago is uh, when it was coming out it's the, the some of the reactions are actually even questioning that it's not patriotic to the left is suddenly cares very much about patriotism so they're saying it's it's not patriotic to not pay taxes and then in response you see comments like like oh no it's it's actually more patriotic to not pay taxes because right, you're right. outsmarting the the big state Right, right, totally. It, it everything comes down to the culture war. I mean, I think there was a uh, at the beginning of COVID, a lot of people had the hopeful assumption that COVID was going to kill the culture wars. Well, no, COVID has done nothing but ramp up the culture wars. I mean, something like masks becomes a symbol in the culture war, um, which was totally inevitable. You know, it, it it's this is not a new thing. You saw this after nine eleven. You know. Uh, uh, U.S. Republicans trying to rename French fries into Freedom Fries. Um, it's not new at all. Yeah. So let's let's dial back a little bit for our listeners. So you're one. I, I always think of you as in the bucket of some of the most inexplicably hated people <laughs> online. Try try to explicate it. Why are you so loathed? Well, that's because you've never dated me. Um, so it. It really comes down to one story that I wrote in 2017. So um, before COVID, I was a staff writer at The Stranger, which is Seattle's all-weekly. 
And I started on staff there in 2017, but before I started on staff, I was a freelancer. And I wrote a piece um, called The Detransitioners. And it was a deeply reported investigation into the lives of about six or seven people who had transitioned from one sex or gender to the other and then transitioned back. And, and before that, I had really spent most of my career writing about climate change. So when I would get things like hate mail, it was mostly be from people who, you know, thought climate change was a Chinese hoax or something like that. And then things really changed after that piece came out. And the piece itself was, uh, I, I recommend people read it because the level of, of hate that it, that I received after this piece was published was really sort of, um, it didn't make any sense when you consider what the piece was actually about, because the piece was, uh, I went out of my way to uh, sort of affirm trans identities. I had trans sensitivity readers, but there was this real backlash to the piece and, and the backlash has continued for three years. So I, I don't live in Seattle anymore. Um, but I, I went back there for the first time in about three months, uh, two days ago, and I got off the bus and the first thing I saw when I got off the bus was a sticker. And this, I've seen this circle before. This was not, I hadn't seen it in this particular place, but I have seen this version of the sticker before. But there was a sticker on a telephone pole, and it said, Katie Herzog is transphobic. Um, wow. And if you read the piece, that doesn't make any sense, because there's no transphobia in the piece. But the narrative that sort of spread online, primarily from people who hadn't actually read it, but who have loud voices online, was that it was transphobic. And so I sort of got pegged with this reputation, um, I think unfairly. Um, three years ago, and it and it it really hasn't let up since then. And you know, just today, I got in some sort of little Twitter spat with somebody, um, a trans person online, who you know accused me and my co-host Jesse Signal of being transphobic. And I said, like, okay, well, show me the evidence. Like, find the piece that's transphobic. Find the line of the piece that's transphobic. And and she couldn't do it because it it doesn't exist. Um, you know, and I, I should be better about sort of ignoring those voices because I've been through this over and over and nobody can produce any evidence to show my transphobia because there, there is none. Um, but that's been sort of my life for the past three years since I published this piece is battling this, uh, this sort of false rumor that has spread like wildfire. And how do you understand what they see or haters see when they say transphobic? Well, I, that's a good question. I mean, I think what they're doing is signaling to each other. Um, or signaling to their allies. Um, and, and I don't think this comes from deep readings of the piece because the piece itself really does actually affirm trans identities. Um, so I, I think a lot of it is this, you know, for lack of a better term, I think is, is uh, virtue signaling, is this way of saying, you know, I'm on the right side of history and this other person is on the wrong side of history. But in, in in a case like yours, this is why why I'm so interested in this. Like, why would you cause such rancor? What what about the fact that you even looked at the topic of detransitioning caused such well, an uproar? Right. So that's a good question. So I think detransition people who detransitioned are sort of inherently threatening to some trans activists because. If the idea, if the, if the reality is, and the reality is that some people who transition, it doesn't it doesn't work for them. It doesn't alleviate their dysphoria. It doesn't make them more comfortable with their bodies. It doesn't it doesn't make their lives better. And if they um, if they decide to detransition, then that could be an argument against against uh, easy access to healthcare for trans people. So that's sort of on paper, that's sort of what the what the argument is. That's why it's dangerous to these activists in particular to talk to detransitioners or to platform detransitioners, because they think that's going to be used by clinicians who are not in favor of trans healthcare or legislature legislators um, to deny trans people healthcare. And I and I think that's a legitimate concern. Um, but my job as a journalist is not to acquiesce or to uh, or to even you know help out activists. My job is to tell the truth about what's happening in the world, and this is a population that exists and is growing, and um, also deserves to have their stories told. And what 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 drew your attention to it originally? And and, what, and also, did you did you have a sense that it's gonna be such a watershed moment for you? I, I did know there was going to be a backlash. And part of the reason I knew that is because 
during the course of reporting the piece, I talked to some writers and clinicians who had who had worked with detransitioners who had written about about trans issues in a way that wasn't um, sort of uh, I would say one hundred percent pro transition ideology. Um, I'm I'm not putting that well, but um, so I, I talked to people who'd sort of been through the ringer by writing about trans issues in a way that trans activists didn't like, and and they told me what was going to happen. And I thought naively that the fact that I'm a lesbian and that I have lots of trans friends and have for the past decade and a half of my life, I thought that was going to matter, that that would sort of be taken into consideration and people could see this is a, a good faith effort to get to the bottom of what is happening, of this phenomenon that is happening. Um, and I was totally wrong about that. It, you know, it's, I was not just a heretic, I was a traitor. Um, and in terms of what drew me to the story, so the first inkling that I had that this was a thing that was happening um, was through a podcast that I heard probably in 2016 or so. It was the, the show Love and Radio. Mm, yeah. And yeah, and so they, they, they talked to a, a woman who I've since become friends with named Carrie Callahan. And she just, she told her story, she, her detransition story. And it was just incredibly fascinating to me. And I started looking into it and I saw that there was this online community of these people who sometimes, you know, met in real life and sometimes just sort of existed as a community online. Um, and I, I just found them fascinating. And, and part of the reason I found them so interesting was because these were people who oftentimes had, you know, were terrified to come out as trans. They were terrified that their friends and families would, uh, would um, you know, reject them. And that hadn't happened. But when they had come out as D-trans, it did happen. And I just found that so, so interesting, you know, that they were, they were shunned by their communities, but it wasn't for the thing that they thought was going to result in the shunning. It was from this other thing that they did, that they did later on. And, you know, and, and the great irony right. here is that after I, I wrote this piece, the same thing happened to me. Katie, can I ask you a question about this idea of platforming and what mm -hmm. it means? As like a journalist, when you think about who you choose to write about and what is what is your responsibility or not to to in the selection of the of the stories you choose and the people you talk to, how do you think about the, that? And as it like intersects with this this idea of of platforming, which is actually a new a new term for me, I wasn't aware of it, but I I get I get it. <laughs> yeah, so I think people use the term platforming in, or, or journalists and, and media critics use the term platforming to um, to refer to somebody that you have elevated by giving them a voice within some some publication and that is more often used with like you know somebody from the new york times mm -hmm. will uh or the new yorker uh the new yorker several years ago now infamously david remnick the um, editor of the paper was going to have steve bannon steve bannon at the new yorker festival steve bannon is accurate yes and uh and and there was this huge backlash by a lot of people who had been invited to um to you know, be a part of the New Yorker Festival, people like Roxanne Gay and others, because they didn't want Steve Bannon to be platformed. You know, as a journalist, I've always found that a little bit incongruent with the job. Um, and like, here's an example for you. So the local, um, the local NPR station where I live, KUW, the host of a, of a local, you know, like call-in show Several years ago, there was a guy who was downtown Seattle, and he was wearing like the like a Nazi insignia um, on his jacket or something like that. And somebody assaulted him while he was there. And the host of the show decided to have the guy wearing the Nazi insignia on his show. And there was a huge, huge backlash, major outcry. People, you know, um, stopped donating to the to the station. Lots of complaints. And and he sort of went through this abject apology. He he cried on air. Um, he was abjectly sorry about this and and in my mind it was sort of like i want to know what the nazi thinks you know the same way that i want to know what the isis fighter thinks and the right-wing conservative thinks and the antifa um you know i don't know if antifa if they have like a if they have um particular um names in their in their organizations i don't know what the hierarchy is but i, I want to know what they think and so for me it's always seemed a little bit like well, the job of the journalist is to sometimes, yes, platform people you disagree with, odious people, because we're trying to tell the world 
what people think. So it's not something that I, you know, there, there are shows that I won't be on um, for various reasons or whatever. There are people I probably wouldn't have on my show. But this idea that you shouldn't platform people who have beliefs that you find odious, I just, to me, that's sort of the antithesis of, the, you know, the journalistic mission. What's frustrating about this and unsettling is that the rules are never clear. Because, of course, there is a market that seeks to satisfy the public fascination, the prurient fascination with extreme characters, characters that are far outside the norms of society. And normally it's understood that whenever those characters are represented, they are not being endorsed by anyone. And yet, in some situations, when you, you know, interrogate or explore certain people in right. certain times, in certain outlets, then suddenly it is deemed, I don't know, counter-revolutionary or something. For David Remnick, it was Steve Bannon. For James Bennett, it was Tom Cotton. And, and for you, to some right. extent, it was... Uh, Jordan Peterson, the mm -hmm. controversial, best-selling Canadian psychologist and self-help guru whom you wrote about in 2018. Yeah, um, was it? I think it was 2019. Well, I wrote a bunch of pieces about Jordan Peterson, probably more than more than I should have. Um, but there was uh, like one piece I wrote about Jordan Peterson um, was about a film that Peterson was made about Peterson. So this documentary, these Canadian filmmakers made this film about Jordan Peterson, and um, and it got. It got banned before it had been shown at a bunch of different venues. Uh, so there was a place in Brooklyn, I think, and maybe one in either Toronto or Montreal that they were gonna they were gonna do screenings of this film, and the staff members sort of uh, you know said no, we don't want we don't want to be affiliated with this, um, and so the film was canceled. And I was on the phone with these filmmakers, and while I was on the phone with them, they got a, a text message from a pastor of a church who had in Portland who had agreed to show the film. And he he sent them a screenshot of a message that he got from some like local activist that said like, hey, you know, we believe in the First Amendment. We believe in, you know, your right to like practice your religion however you want or whatever. We're also going to bring a guillotine, a guillotine or a guillotine to uh outside of your church if if you have this screen. Sounds reasonable. Right, totally, totally reasonable, right? And to me, it was just like this is this is the this shows you what is wrong with the moment right now, which is like you people who are mad about this haven't seen this documentary, and if you had seen it, you would see that it's actually not a glowing portrait of Jordan Peterson. It's critical in many ways, but you won't even watch the movie before you try to prevent other people from watching the movie. And it's fine if you don't want to watch the movie, but wait. What I think that you shouldn't do is try to prevent other people from also following your, or force other people to follow your particular ethical compass. And I think it's funny because also your pieces, to my account of Jordan Peterson, have, have never been, like, they're far from glowing. And no. in fact, some of the best, juiciest, most biting Peterson takedowns can be found in those very pieces that are considered Peterson apologia, if you actually bother to read them. You describe him as dull, as having bad ideas about women. You really make a point of listing everything that is banal, uninteresting, or pernicious about him, while also making the point right. that maybe, just maybe, presenting him as an alt-right recruiter is a bit hysterical. Right. I, um, like, my basic take, take on Jordan Peterson is that he has been good for a select number of people. And I've met a bunch of people. He's been, he's been really instrumental in helping these people sort of, you know, get off their ass and go, like, get a job or start working out or whatever. That's good. Um, but, you know, I don't think he's a Nazi. And, and just by virtue of the fact that I don't think Jordan Peterson is a Nazi, there are literally, there are stickers in Seattle say, calling me a Jordan Peterson apologist. The pushback you got from the Peterson piece and the detransitioning piece, you imply that it had broader consequences than just some hate mail, which is to be expected, some might say even courted. What were those consequences? What were the effects it had on your community, on your social interactions? How did it play out? Um, well, so after the detransition piece came out, there was a big uh, backlash online. And some people who are 
big, let's say big names in sort of Seattle liberal circles um, did like call outs, you know, sort of the, the quintessential I am like calling you out on Facebook thing. And that had a big impact. Um, and it wasn't just online. So there were all of these, like I, I mentioned the stickers, um, people were burning copies of the paper and sending me videos of it. There was flyers, like flyers at the coffee shops uh, in my neighborhood and in, in the, um, the paper boxes that the stranger was in, um, calling me transphobic. So there was that. And, and obviously, because of that, like people, including friends of mine, are going to sort of reconsider the value of my friendship. Mm -hmm. Because there's this guilt by association where, like, if you're friends with Katie Herzog, you must be a turf or transphobic or whatever. Nobody has ever been able to, like, provide any evidence that I'm a turf or transphobic. But, you know, the rumor lasts much longer than the, the reality. Um, and so it had that sort of uh, that social impact. But, and that was negative, of course. Yeah. But there was also this, uh, this positive impact, which is that it sort of, it it uh it sparked this sort of change in me where I had been dogmatically of the left, dogmatically liberal, and I had this assumption that if there was some policy or this idea, some idea that was liberal or we thought of it as liberal, I thought of it as liberal, then it was correct. And then when I started to see people passing on these rumors and sort of and, and oftentimes sort of lying about about me and my intentions. I had this realization like, oh my God, like if my people are wrong about this, what else are they wrong about? And it, and it, it, it took sort of, it has taken, I'm still sort of in the process of this. It's, it's taken sort of years to sort of work around that. I mean, it hasn't changed the way that I vote. I still vote for Democrats. I'm a registered Democrat. Um, but it has changed my, it has given me a level of skepticism about media and about other institutions that I that I really didn't have before, and and I, you know the the but the real positive change is that it has also made me far more open to conversing with people who weren't like me. So in the past, I like before 2016, I didn't know any Trump voters. You know, I sort of like there's the like high school friend on Facebook or whatever, but I really didn't know anybody who wasn't politically just like me. And I and I sort of thought of that as a virtue. I was sort of proud of that, and I'm not anymore. Um, and I've really gone out of my way to to befriend people who aren't like me. And uh, I think I've learned a lot more about the world. Um, I w it, it makes me wonder, and it's something that I've been thinking a lot about myself. Um, since moving to the U.S., which has a completely, I come from Israel, and 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 you, you won't be surprised to know that America has a very different um, set of culture mm -hmm. war in terms of the rules, in terms of the dynamics, than than other places in the world. And it was something that took me a while to to wrap my head around. And it specifically in the past five years, there seems seems to be a growing industry on the right for the, the sort of appropriated the idea of tolerance and free speech and to me it strikes a lot, a lot of it seems specious and 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 yeah. griftery i don't disagree with that at all and i'm concerned about it you know it, it, like cancel culture is something i've been writing about since before the, the name cancel culture existed and now donald trump is talking about cancel culture and it feels like this like underground band that i really loved um you know sold out i i like i i hate that this has become that free speech has become the mantle of the right i really do it and I don't entirely blame the right because it's opportunistic because they sense that there is, this is a weak point on the left because it is, it is a weak point. Um, and they sense that this is, this is, uh, you know, a way that they can sort of take up this cause, which, you know, I, I think that they're doing in some ways, unfortunately, successfully. Um, yeah, no, it's a it's a problem, and and I don't really know how to reconcile this one. Right, you know? and, and my my actual question is how I, I guess you 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 just answered it, but I, I'm wondering how do you how are you able to tell where do you draw the line for yourself in terms of who are your genuine allies and who is just trying to recruit you to their side? I, and I'll, I'll I remember there's a I think it was a PragerU video of 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 Dennis Prager talking to Dave Rubin, who is the eternal. Right. ex-liberal yes, yes. he will be like it will be 10 years from now 
and we'll still be telling his enlightenment story about how he's how he discovered you know right. the the follies of liberalism yeah and and, I, and dennis prager actually says to him you know it's valuable to us that you yes. are a liberal or yes. an ex-liberal it's like that guy who would go on fox as a guest for a year and would always have the current saying ex-liberal slamming liberals at some point you're no longer an ex-liberal yeah. no you're totally right and you know i have that question about things like going on fox news i've been invited on fox news a couple times and, I, and i've never done it um and i don't actually have a problem with people going on fox news like somebody like i just i just have to interject and say thank you for thinking more highly of us than fox news <laughs> <laughs> i also did not go on the white nationalist podcast that requested me so I do have some lines. Um, but, you know, someone like Glenn Greenwald or even Bernie Sanders will go on Fox News. And I think that's totally fine, because if you want to reach people, well, that's where the people are. But there is this, you know, I, it, it bothers me when I, like I've been bitching about something on Twitter all day. And then I find out that Tucker Carlson mm-hmm. has been bitching about the same thing. But the, the thing is, the reason Tucker is bitching about this is because it's a weak point on the left. So he's picking up, the reason he's picking up on this thing is because it is legitimately something that deserves to be criticized. You know, um, in terms of, of who my allies are, you know, I find pretty quickly that people who follow me because they think that I, or who follow me because I criticize the left, will quickly unfollow me um, when they hear me qu- criticize the right. Mm. Um, you know, and that's something that, Dave Rubin doesn't do my, my my big problem with Dave Rubin is that he does the he does the wrong thing, which is decide that the the answer to the excesses of the left is to turn to Donald Trump, which is if you if you're pro if you're worried about for lack of a better term this woke ideology proliferating on the left, electing Donald Trump is the worst thing you could possibly do because a lot of this is a reaction to Donald Trump. I'm wondering too about there's like two a separate and related issue at hand i feel like it's not just trying to isolate like who are your allies on twitter but even in real life in real conversation i'm curious how do you suss out when you're talking to someone that maybe you haven't met before or that you're not familiar with their their viewpoints and everything how do you kind of suss out the climate of the of the context enough to know like what can you say and what can't you say and like can you trust this person to be kind of authentically who you are and have the viewpoint. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. That is such a good question. You know, fortunately for me, I talk to very few people these days. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do most of my talking on podcasts and, and less of it in person. <laughs> um, but that that is a really good question. So I have a, um, I live in a, in a small town. And so I used to live in Seattle and I, and I moved out to the small town about a year ago. And I have two neighbors who I'm, I'm close with. And one of them is an 86-year-old Trump supporter who wears an NRA hat all the time. And he has 200 guns in his house, literally 200 guns in his house. And we have nothing in common politically, but we both have dogs and our dogs really love each other. And on the other side of me, I have a sort of woke social justice, uh, like online, like social media justice warrior who loves to tell me that J.K. Rowling is is transphobic, right? So- I think that I can, like, speaking with both of them, I think that they, I would probably leave conversations with both of them, with them thinking I agree with them. Hmm. Because I'm able to, like, bullshit in those <laughs> conversations because within my, like, personal life, it's just, like, really honestly not worth it. Um, but, you know, I think there, there are ways to sort of questions you can ask that sort of suss out what people believe um, in a way that, that doesn't totally give away your position. Hmm. Um, but I also think that it's, it's worth remembering that, you know, I I think a lot of us live by the assumption that the people we meet and the people around us believe the same things that we Mm do. And that may be true if you're a liberal who lives in a city, but I'm a liberal who lives in a Navy town. So I've, I've, I've stopped believing that. Um, and I think that's actually been, been good for me to, to, uh, you know, stop having this assumption that because I don't believe in God, you know, the people around me aren't going to believe in God because that's frankly not true in, in, in many cases in, in my and, but to to distill your your argument or your solution it's just just don't open everything up with the people you meet yeah I, there are times when it's appropriate there are times when it's not you know and and i have come to the conclusion at least with the people who live directly around me that uh oftentimes it is better to be a little bit superficial 
and and uh, and agreeable even when you don't want to be, um, just for the sake of like having a nice a nice living situation. That's so heartbreaking. It's just like you know, mm-hmm. I, I, for me as an Israeli, and and I can't believe I'm actually starting as an as an Israeli. <laughs> um, the 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 idea of you know keeping some topics off the table um for for the sense of community or or you know just like social cohesion is is yeah. so sad like we i i made a note to myself as like it was like the running through questions like that there's nothing more microaggressing to an israeli than the concept of microaggressions it's like this is the this is the 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 thing that nourishes us normally okay. getting into arguments Well, okay, so I've got a question for you. Okay, so a lot of a lot of the current uh, leftist or left-wing ideology is very anti-Israel. So I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of sort of woke ideology has also per- proliferated in Israel as it has through through many circles in in Europe. So how does that how does that work? Um, Is there wokeness in Israel and is it, is it anti-Israel? It's, it's actually an interesting question because there are two different ideologies that are both inherently anti-Israeli who have um, um, percolated into Israeli um, media and communication. Yeah. One is, yes, woke culture, and it's definitely taking over because we, we just copy all the bad ideas of the United States. Yes. And, the, and the way that this is reconciled is actually... There are two ways. One is the I'm going to take the parts that I think apply to my normal life, which is, you know, the the sexism, the the genderism. And there, there are racial yeah. issues in Israel as well. And they're yeah. profound and have real sometimes segregational consequences, obviously. So some people who are focused on those issues will sometimes borrow some of the American language from woke culture and try to apply it, which could lead to absurd results. Wait, do you have, is there, so does the term Latinx exist mm-hmm. <laughs> in Israel? I can't imagine it does. No, unfortunately. You don't have, you don't have any Latinxs? <laughs> We have more Latin than Xs. So that's one generally saying sometimes comical solution for reconciling those ideas. The other solution is actually some, some people on the Israeli left have completely absorbed the idea that Israel doesn't have a right to exist, which is, mm-hmm. which is you know, very, very interesting. Like the, the, but the, it's not that surprising when you think about the self-annihilating instincts that you can yeah. see even in, in American liberals. Mm-hmm. So are, are there people in Israel who argue that Israel should not exist? Uh, yes, absolutely. There are people who want to see maybe uh, a one-state solution, which essentially sure. means the, the eradication of any national identity and, you know, potentially the rejection at large of the idea of a Jewish homeland. And that's the purified version of anti-Zionism. And yeah, you, you have Israelis who, who hold some version of this view. And, you know, they, they, I'm sure they, they have some arguments. But interestingly, there's another side of the, of the culture, or the global culture war, I would say, it's not just American, that is getting absorbed, and that is the, the nationalism conversation. And you can see how yes. there is growing support on the right for ideas that would, should also be anathema to, to I would say, the, the global Jewry, like the Viktor Orban in Hungary. He's, mm-hmm. he's, he's a hero on, on the left, and, and uh, sorry, he's a hero on the right, in the same way that um, George Soros mm-hmm. is no less mm-hmm. a scapegoat in Israel than he is in Europe. Is he? Netanyahu himself, not to mention his toadies, love sharing their sorrows memes. And perhaps most notably, Yair Netanyahu, the next in line heir to our current prime minister, long may he reign, has shared white nationalist memes so often that he was actually featured on the cover of the Daily Storm once. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. What's fascinating is just how malleable and spongy we are to some of the worst ideas out there from both sides. And tribal. I mean, and it doesn't have to be within your, your you know, your uh, sort of ethnic tribe. This tribal can also be your online allegiance or political allegiance or whatever. So, yeah. And what do you make of that? That the, that the allegiance is... is in a way, internationalist. Even the, even the anti-globalists are globalized in their allegiances because you'll feel more in line with the, the right wing of the world and then, than you would with the, with the leftists in your own country. Sure. Yeah, I think people are looking for something. You know, and I'm not a religious person by any means. I, I was raised by atheists. I've, I've never been to a church service in my life outside of, outside of weddings. Um, but I do think that the... Uh, at least in the United States, this increasing secularism does have some downsides. And one of those downsides, and this is not purely just about religion, this is also about 
the proliferation of the of the online and people not doing things like joining softball mm-hmm. leagues or, or bowling leagues right. or whatever. But I think people are desperate for community. You know, you look at statistics about just the amount of sex that young people are having compared to previous generations. And this is not just COVID related. You know, people aren't having sex. They're not going out. They're not meeting each other. If they are meeting each other, they're meeting each other online. Right. That, that's um, a Gene Twenge research. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and I think that's, you know, we're just starting, starting to see the beginning of that right now. You know, and you and you can see how this. I think uh, there are countries in Asia who are a little bit more farther advanced um, on the path than we are, like Japan or Korea. And you see this just this disconnect, you know, and it's the disconnect that that creates this this desire for meaning um, and this desire for desire for inclusion and community. And this is the thing that causes people to join. ISIS or to join, you know, uh, uh, the Proud Boys or whatever, or to get online and just seek community. Um, and, and we don't have a, we don't have that right now. Um, and and, it's, uh, it's a problem. But how do we, how are we in a point where looking around and trying to make peace with your neighbors in order to build a community with them seems more unthinkable and untenable than looking overseas to forge an alliance with people you don't know and whose opinions maybe just a year ago you'd have considered vile. Yeah, that's the question. You know, how do we convince each other to or convince ourselves to leave our houses and go meet people? Um, you know, I don't know the answer to that. And certainly uh, a global pandemic doesn't make that any easier. But I, I think, you know, if you, if you live in it, before I, I moved out to where I am now, I, I lived in cities for most of my adult life. And if I lived in apartment buildings, I didn't really know my neighbors. You know, you might say hi to them in the mailroom or whatever, but the people around you are virtual strangers. Um, and, you know, there are consequences to that. And do you feel like you have a sense of community now on, on the quote unquote other side? Uh, n- I mean, not, <laughs> 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 not really. I mean, uh, you know, since... March, I've been basically quarantined. You know, I, I see my neighbor, you know, like everybody else, you know, I, I see my neighbors. I occasionally see, see friends from like a social distance right. or whatever. So we're in such a strange time. And, I, and I, I have, I do have sort of community online in the sense that I have friends online, but it doesn't feel the mm-hmm. same. Um, it's not the same as like, and, and to be honest, like living in Seattle, when I did live in Seattle, there was not a lot of, um, I was sort of hated there by a lot of people. So it was, I was in sort of a strange position um, where like people would find out my name and then all of a sudden decide that I was trash and not worth talking to or whatever. And so that wasn't, uh, so uh, let me put it this way. It's been, it's been like several years since I've like really felt like I've had like good community in the world. Um, but I'm also like, I'm married and I have a right. white or have a dog and you know, that's all you need. <laughs> <laughs> I tell myself every day while crying into my pillow. <laughs> Did you actually have that moment in real time where you could see a, p- a person's reaction to you change when they realize who you are? Yeah, I've had that. I've had that happen several oh. times. Um, the one that that stands out the most. I was at a I was at a bar maybe a year ago, um, not far from my work, just like waiting for the ferry. And I told someone that I worked at the Stranger, which is the paper that I worked for at the time. Um, you know, which is the question that everybody asks: What do you do? And uh, I said that I worked at Stranger, and and this woman said, "Oh, do you work with that transphobe?" Hmm. Um, and I said, "Yeah, I, I am that transphobe." And so I had that, you know, I had that moment of her saying, "Oh shit!" <laughs> and I said, "Did you, you know, have you actually read my work?" She hadn't, um, but she she left shortly after. We did not, uh, we did not make peace, unfortunately. And now you've turned digging into that morass dumpster fire of twitter into your livelihood yeah yeah that's the that's sort of the funny thing i um i got laid off from my job writing and i started this podcast along with jesse mm-hmm. signal and uh it's i'm like making twice as much money as the podcasting yeah. success <laughs> it's just you know it's all through patreon Whoa. we're gonna start doing ads uh we're gonna start doing ads i think in the next month Whoa. or so but right now it's all through patreon and i um yeah so i i work 
literally one day a week. I have I have a one hour conversation with my friend Jesse, <laughs> and then I edit the podcast, and uh, that's my job. And I, I, I was going to ask who edits. Money. Yeah, I do the I do mostly. Jesse edits the Patreon versions. I edit the I edit the longer ones mostly because I'm. Um, <laughs> I'm more concerned, I think, about sounding like an <laughs> idiot, so I want to have ultimate control over it. How, how often do you find yourself fixing your your <laughs> misstatements? Oh, every every second, every second, yeah. Well, what's the? I'm just sorry, this is total total like navel gazing. <laughs> but what's the? Uh, what was the most embarrassing thing that you noticed that you said on 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 your podcast that you had to cut out? Oh gosh! That's, or am I, am I, I th- ruining like subscriber content? Can now? I can I tell you? Uh, can I tell you the most embarrassing thing Jesse said? <laughs> Pass the buck. Well, can you? I don't know what the disclosure agreement between the two of you is. You know, I can't think of anything that I've said recently that was that was very embarrassing. But Jesse did have a really good joke about babies the other day. You know, like like people who like who like birth a child and decide that the child's going to be gender neutral, and then he asked me to edit it out. Oh. So. I did it as a, as a gift to him. I edited it out. It was a great joke, though. He's did you ha- did you had to force yourself? Or were you, were you that close to just like sending release with the with a joke in? Well, he gets the uh, he gets the final cut. He's the oh. one who who uploads it, right. so couldn't have gotten away with it. But this and, and plus, I don't want him to get too canceled. I need him. <laughs> but I mean, this does bring up a, a point that I've been I was thinking about listening to your podcast. Is that you know. You guys joke around a lot and you're very blunt with each other. And some of the humor comes in being just straight up straightforward about things. And sometimes it's just you, you like to joke around. No, no being being straightforward yeah. is something that is very foreign. For <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, definitely. I'm like, circuitous is my middle name. Um, yeah. But it, it strikes me that I just I realized listening to your podcast the other day that like it's so rare that I hear people joking in this manner it mm. seems like it's uh mm-hmm. it's like atrophying the, the skill set in america yeah. and i'm curious how what you think about that you know that's a uh, that's a great way of putting it there is this lack of humor yeah. right now i mean there is a, there's a ton of humor like twitter can be a very funny place um comics can be very funny right now but there is this sort of you know this fear of um this fear of like stepping in a hornet's mm-hmm. nest and I think that does there. I mean, it, there's like probably once an episode or once every episode, Jesse or I will say something that we say like during the editing process, like, oh, that's that's too far. <laughs> and, and and most of that is stuff that wouldn't have been too far, mm. you know, three years ago or five years ago. Um, and so there's this constant recalibration about what's appropriate and what's going to get you in like real trouble and what's not. Um, I got suspended from twitter a couple days ago for making from for making a joke about yes Adam, having hear about this can you yeah. can you tell the story of why you got suspended on twitter please yeah so uh, so right after ruth bader ginsburg after it was announced that she died i had this image of mitch mcconnell just like smiling himself to death because he, this is like the best day of his life so i made this joke about it and then i followed up the joke by saying something like i'm not like Obviously, I don't want him to have a stroke and die. I just want him to be brain dead. I'm not a monster. And the joke was like saying something monstrous and then saying I'm not a monster. That was the joke. Anyway, Twitter suspended me for 12 hours. Um, a bunch of people like wrote me emails saying that I was a horrible person. They wanted to get me fired. So I like I like tweeted saying like, well, if you want to get me fired, like you need to write like Jesse Single, and I gave his email address. Um, so I managed I managed to to um, at least attempted to ruin my co-host day as well. It didn't work, unfortunately. People were too lazy to actually actually email him. Um, Interesting, because the people who probably sent you an email about trying to get you fired are are the people who will listen to Tucker Carlson talking about cancel culture. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and you know, and the, so we had a. You know, the, uh, so there's this big controversy of this movie Cuties, and oh uh, yeah, it, it's it's yeah. really fun because it kind of like brings us back to the good old days when the right is responsible for puritanical yes. panics. Yes, exactly, exactly. And uh, there was some, uh, you know, I think there was some overlap there. I did see some like good liberals like upset about the movie Cuties, and some and like lots of feminists upset about it. Um, can you can, can you tell the story? Set it up. Sure, sure. So this is a it's a French film that was released on Netflix, and Netflix did something very stupid. So the film is about this eleven year old girl who comes from a oh, not Somali, um, Senegal. Senegal. Her family, Sen- yeah, yeah, a Senegalese family. So like recent immigrants in Paris, and she's stuck between these two worlds of this like you know Muslim 
patriarchal culture where she works a lot and she's considered a woman when she gets her period at the age of 11 and this Parisian Western world where she, it's this sort of hypersexual. So she joins this dance team and there are these scenes in the film as as a rebellion against her, her own family. And there's these scenes in the film where she's dancing in this, like she and these other girls are dancing in this very suggestive manner. And so Netflix idiotically, when they released the, like the poster or whatever digital equivalent of um, this film, they release a picture of these girls wearing, you know, sort of scantily clad, not in a way that actually would be different from any like dance troupe in America, but scantily clad looking sort of suggestive. And then this, uh, Someone, a conservative who was mad about the movie, posted a clip online of these girls twerking, so dancing in this like very suggestive manner. And there was this massive outcry. And Ted Cruz said that there was going to be. He was like writing the Department of Justice to try to get an investigation into Netflix. Hmm. People were calling this child pornography. It's not actual. It's not actually child pornography. Like there's no nudity. There's no sex. And the film itself is is very nuanced. And the whole thing is about is a condemnation of the sexualization of children. But nobody had seen the film, but they got really pissed. They also had psychologists working with the production every step of the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they had, like, child psychologists on on set. Like, none of it, like, the utmost care was taken to make sure these girls were not exploited. But the narrative became, this is child pornography, and these girls were exploited, despite the fact that, most people hadn't seen the film and there have been no complaints about exploitation. Um, so Jesse and I talked about that. We watched the film and we gave our sort of typical take, which is like, <laughs> it's, it's more complicated than the narrative online. Um, and we lost a bunch of patrons. Mm-hmm. I got a bunch of, a bunch of people were like mad at me online. I, well, that was also because I tweeted like 15 times about how the problem with cuties was that the girls weren't sexy enough and shit like that. Just the, <laughs> because I'm a terrible person. Um, And it was just like, like so enticing. This whole thing was so, people were so mad about this movie that they hadn't seen, you know? And the same thing happened. Like I just read the JK Rowling book um, that came out that people are all mad about because it's transphobic and nobody had ever read the book. This is like Um, a constant refrain. It's that I feel like in your, in your podcast, like, but they haven't read it. They haven't seen it. They haven't. Right. It's just like over and over again. Yeah, the, this our latest episode is about the J.K. Rowling book that people hadn't read but were sure was transphobic and about a film um, called uh, TFW No GF um, that a bunch of people are sure uh, valorizes incels and they haven't seen it because it's not out mm-hmm. yet. So I, that's a lot of what we do is like, I think, try to try to calm down hysteria and moral panics about things that people have not actually exposed themselves How's to. How's it going? <laughs> Yeah, very good. Well, I mean, it's going well in the sense that, like, we're getting... You're making money out of it. We're making money. Um, It's not going well in the sense that we also live in a world where a lot of people, like, believe in QAnon. And if it's not QAnon, there's, like, or believe that in, like, the Russian collusion, Mm. you know, there's, like, there's hysteria on both sides. It leads us to a question that I I really wanted to ask um, but now I'm on a fork because I want to talk to you about uh, sexual moral panics, but I also want sure. to ask you about the stupidity on both sides, where to go. I guess it will converge in the end. Yeah. So let's, let's start with stupidity. How do you draw the, the blind spots on the right and on the left right now? Oh, that's such a good question. I think they're very connected. And I think sex is, is the commonality, right? Yeah. So, so, a lot of not a lot. Okay, I have to. I have to be as politic as possible when I say this. I do think there was because you're nothing element, if not right. Right. I do think there was an element of moral panic around some Me Too cases, like the Al Franken case and some other cases that were sort of just believed to be true. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to this QAnon stuff. Um, so in one case, it's believe the women and in another case, it's believe the children, although there are no actual children apparently who have been like harmed in the QAnon stuff. So I'm not sure how they like, how they, how they square that circle in their minds. But I do think there is this, that's the commonality is that there is this sort of paternalistic, um, you know, believe that in, at least in the me too case that, you know, 
women are always victims. Um, and I think you see that as well in the, in the, the moral panic on the, on the right. And there is something on both those examples that you brought that justifies perhaps in a paternalistic instinct on the, on the case of, you know, save the children, let's put the QAnon extreme on the side. There is truth to the, 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 the cottage industry of, of, child abuse and and child abuse content exists and right there in both cases they're like harvey Weinstein is real and jeffrey epstein are, are real you know right and it goes deeper and i don't want to get too far into it but it's beyond the specific characters of harvey and jeffrey you needed to have institutional support to have allowed predators like harvey weinstein to survive so prominently and for so long like the anger is not just justified but overdue there is truth to the need of you know there needs to be an actual outcry to change some fundamental Mm -hmm. things in society to be able to hold people accountable for for horrible behavior and uh, of abuse whether it's towards women children or whoever absolutely and there's this like every good conspiracy theory you know there's a nugget of truth and then it just sort of creeps, you know, it's concept creep. Uh, the fact that Harvey Weinstein exists and did terrible things and the fact that Jeffrey, Jeffrey Epstein exists and did terrible things is the little nugget of truth that allows the conspiracy itself to grow. Um, and so I don't, you know, and I think, I think a lot of this is, it's cyclical and it's very human and it's going to continue to happen as long as our species exist. Um, and I think we, we need to like grapple with that, you know, the satanic panic was not that long ago. <laughs> Um, you know, this, this, these things happen within, within human culture and and you can recognize them. You can try to shield against them, but it's difficult to do. I don't know if it's just my outsider perspective, but I feel like it's happening in American culture more often than the rest of the world. Yeah. Unfortunately, American culture has a a tendency to spread. Hmm. Well, I actually just wanted to go back just to make sure I understood that. And, and, And so with the answer your answer to the question then about the, the biggest blind sides on the left and the right, you think it, it mm. you, you do, you do kind of target it in sex just in different ways. Is, mm. is that your answer? Um, well, I don't know. I, uh, so the biggest blind spots on the left and the right, I, I think the, the biggest blind spots are sort of more fundamental and the biggest blind spot is a, a lack of epistemic humility a lack of um, the awareness that you could be wrong. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's also a very human thing. And this is something that changed for me over the past couple of years because I was such a sort of diehard ideologue before the detransition piece and everything that happened. I didn't have any concept that I could be wrong. And so I, I think that's, that's the problem with any sort of, um, any, any tribe, any, any political party, any movement is this uh, this real blanket inability to to consider the fact that you might be you might be wrong? How do we get there without having to be canceled first, or is that the only way? That's forward? the question. That's the question. I, I think I think seeing other people be canceled oh who you who you trust <laughs> like helps, but that's the question. I mean, there is this. Uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of people over the years who have had similar political um, evolutions as I have, and the commonality is that we've all been accused of something that we didn't feel was right um and i don't know how you replicate that i mean the good thing is everybody's gonna be canceled eventually so we just gotta we wait all, it we out. all have a clock ticking over our yeah, heads yeah i but i i think that there's something beyond that the fact that you just said it that the, the fact that we all feel those clocks ticking and whether that outrage is going to come from the right or the left it's just a matter of time is is not just a matter of the epistemic um, arrogance on both sides, which I think is always the case when you have ideologues. But the mm-hmm. problem is that everyone is an ideologue now. Like, yeah. it, like you have to belong to a political tribe. Otherwise, you're not, you're not in... Like this is the biggest game on right now. It's the being in the rafters, shouting and, and rooting for your team. It's like everybody substituted their fun time for watching this single horrible sport with real life consequences. Yeah. I mean, the one thing both sides can agree on is that the worst side is centrist. <laughs> um, 
you know, no, you're right. It has become sports. It's become drama. I think one reason I want Trump out of office because I hope all of this will just cool down and people will stop caring mm-hmm. as much. Um, but you know, the like the culture war stuff. How 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 it 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 fell into neat lines around COVID, um, where it became mass became a culture war issue. And that's crazy. <laughs> that is mm-hmm. crazy, but also totally inevitable. I, I loved how you brought up the Trump again in in him his ability to to rev up the outrage and and you had a great episode recently about his decision to. Um, issue the, the the political writ against critical race theory and how bad an idea that is and not and not out of particular love for critical race theory but out of the understanding that Trump putting his thumb on any scale will mean that there is going to be a rallying on the other side yeah it's it's about the backlash I'm opposed to critical race theory in the government I'm opposed to critical race theory in education or or business um, first of all I I'm not sure that any president I want any president in the in the business of dictating what um you know what what businesses what sort of trainings they can do in the first place but my bigger concern is that anytime Trump does something you know he's a uh, what what law is it every time Trump does something there's an equal and opposite reaction um you know all Trump banning critical race theory from the government could possibly do is make people more determined to institute critical race theory in the government when he's out of office, you know, it's, which is a problem. <laughs> and it's also just another proof that for so many people who participate in this sport publicly, including the president, it really isn't about implementing real social yes. changes. But just getting that extra point on the scoreboard, that this little win in this asinine culture war, even if it comes at the expense of actual policy. Um, I, so I just have one last question for you, Katie. Sure. So I'm curious. Um, do you have plans for Election Day? If you do, what are they? And what uh, advice do you have for the rest of us of what we should be doing on Election Day? Yeah. I haven't even thought about really? it. I have no plans for, I mean, I have no plans for anything. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, you know, if, if uh, in a different timeline, if we were in the midst of a global pandemic, things might be different, but um, I probably will be at home with my dog um, and a bunch of weed. <laughs> Although actually, well, wait, shit. All right. I'm going to quit smoking weed and like, oh, I might be sober. Oh, That's going to be difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would be my advice to people who aren't, who aren't quitting weed is to stock up on your, uh, from your local pharmacy. What what convinced you to quit? Um so I realized that I've never like I started smoking weed when I was 12. Um and I and I smoke like you know I smoke daily and I I realized recently that that means that I have never gone through an extended period of sobriety in my mm-hmm. life in my adult life and that seems like something you should do at least once in your life, right? Do you feel do you feel like there's a haze that that you want to that you want lifted or is it just intellectually you 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 want to experiment with with sobriety? I it's more an intellectual experiment but I'm curious if I will have more ambition mm. um and if I will desire to do things like right like at this point I work one day a week and I spend the rest of my week just like taking my dog for walks and smoking weed um and basically acting like a you know like a teenager without a job um, and so I'm curious to see if this will change things. So it's an intellectual experience or experiment with them. Um, maybe, hopefully, uh, some productivity on the other side. We'll see. We'll see how long it lasts. I personally miss your long form writing. So oh, thank you. I'm, I'm putting one vote into that side. Um, thank you. Just an extra final question. <laughs> I just I, I really want to sure. know what's the stupidest thing that you had the pleasure of covering? <laughs> oh, gosh. There's so much. There's so much. I've covered so much stupid <laughs> shit. Um, there was a so one of the early cancel culture stories I wrote was about a uh, or an eatery in Portland where this guy had been at this restaurant, this cafe, and there was somebody sitting beside him beside him who was wearing a German Air Force shirt. 
um, the Luftwaffe, uh, I believe it's called. Is that is that the correct name? Sounds sounds right. Something right. And and so the the historic like so this is still the German Air Force logo. It's like an eagle with uh, like it, like under Nazi times it would have had a swastika in its claw, but it's just sort of the um, you know the in the good itself. old days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, in the good old days. Sure. <laughs> um, and uh, and um, and he saw this guy wearing this shirt and he complained to the manager and the manager the, er, who was the owner of this business. It was a, a couple that owned it and he wouldn't kick this guy out because he said like, you know, freedom of speech, you can wear whatever shirt that he wants. And so this guy, um, he, he, he went home and he got online and he wrote this Facebook message about it. So there was this boycott of this restaurant. Well, it turns out that the restaurant was, um, it was owned by a Jewish woman. And it was named after her grandmother, her grandmotherhood, who had fled the Nazis in Poland. And she had Holy been, when shit. she, she had been like stopped by these border guards and they asked her, she was trying to prove that she was like Ukrainian or something like that. And they asked her to, to say the name duck in Ukrainian. And she said this word, like, Bob, I don't remember the word. She said this word and they let her go because she guessed right. Wow. You know, she she spoke the right language. So this this was the you know the genesis of this name. Um, and this guy had a boycott, you know, um, because he didn't like the shirt of the guy sitting beside him. And he so he he started a boycott of a Jewish restaurant. Um, so That's, I you know there's just some like very delicious <laughs> irony there. That is that is unbelievable. Yeah. Well, on that on delicious that note. joyful note. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Katie. That's, yeah thank you guys for having me it's good to talk it to was you fun. it's 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 awesome yep and and go keep on making sense in the world <laughs> oh thank you i hope that's not copyrighted by sam harris thank you for listening to uncertain things follow us on uncertain.substack.com subscribe wherever you get your podcasts share with your friends and enemies and rate us kindly and until the world ends stay sane